Welcome to today's Leadership Talks series, where we'll be discussing an important topic, woman in venture capital. I'm honored to be your host for this session. I'm Martin Rovinsky, co-founder and CEO of Boardseye. And at Boardseye, we specialize in modern recruitment for companies of all sizes, from startups to publicly traded firms, by connecting them with the best board of directors and advisors. With over six years of experience in this field, we've gathered valuable data that we're constantly using to enhance our platform. While we are indeed one of the industry leaders, our marketplace is at the cutting edge of human capital management. Today marks an important initiative for our firm to embrace the conversation of woman leadership and balance in governance and augment our capabilities for the venture capital community. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce our esteemed panel of top women leaders in the VC world. Please join me in welcoming our special panelists. We'll start with Melinda Moore, who's an investor, advisor, financier, and award-winning entrepreneur with a successful track record of over 15 years in, ev in evaluation and investment and a keen understanding of product market fit, consumer insight, operations, and performance marketing. Melinda? Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I think I've got a little cheerleader in the background, which is my dog, Sophia. There she goes. So I have to apologize in advance for that. Um, yeah, I, I've been a serial entrepreneur, primarily in the entertainment space, delivering 20x multiples to um, our original investors. And I've always been kind of pushing the edge for women, minorities, um, and also the environment. So I became an expert in equity crowdfunding, which is another possible way to raise capital and wrote the book, How to Raise Money, The Ultimate Guide to Crowdfunding, which is available on Amazon. I actually took a company public doing a mini IPO leveraging equity crowdfunding. I've deployed about $100 million of working capital and invest um, with Coyote Ventures in the Bay Area in women's health. Um, and digital health, and then invest in tech-enabled infrastructure through Aventura Ventures, and then obviously advise and sit on a couple boards. So it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Welcome, Melinda. Uh, next, we have Melinda Chalaya, a CFO, COO, growth executive, and a board member, an accomplished entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience in finance, accounting, operations, governance, customer support, and public accounting at renowned companies such as Target, Universal Music Group, Disney, Deloitte, and EY. Melinda. Thank you so much, Martin, for bringing us together to talk about such an important topic of really supporting female founders and women in VCs. I'm fortunate myself to have been supported by a community of people along my journey. I'm a founder of two companies, one of which was incubated at Deloitte, and we ultimately took public, um, and another professional services firm. I'm an angel investor in startup technology companies and currently run Tailored for Growth, which is a consulting firm focused on providing CFO and strategic work for emerging businesses. I have a passion for working with companies in the CPG and technology space, um, Beauty and um, and the pet space is also a particular passion of mine, um, and we support companies with their strategy and financial planning to ensure that they deliver on raising capital and they deliver on their growth objectives. Um, I currently have the pleasure of sitting on the board of WAG. It's the premier pet wellness company um, as their audit chair and on their comp committee. We recently IPO'd and were able to join the team and ringing the NASDAQ bell. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Melinda. Uh, Sandra Campos, CEO, board member, entrepreneur, is a highly accomplished board member uh, and advisor to the retail and technology industry. Throughout her impressive career, she has built global lifestyle brands, spearheaded digital transformations, turnarounds, and international expansion. Sandra. 
Hi, thank you for Hi. having me. I mean, the two Melendas. Hello, there's a lot. There. <laughs> I don't know that I can catch up with all of that. But I am someone who's been in the retail industry throughout my entire career. I've had several pivots from being in a corporate executive function, president CEO roles to being an entrepreneur multiple times. And also have had the opportunity to invest as an angel investor, invest within VC funds, and taken a couple of companies public via SPACs, which we've done, which uh, may not be the best word at the moment, but we've we've yeah. done that a couple of times, had a business combination and took a, another company public in the energy space. And with that, I continue to focus on one entrepreneurial venture right now that I have that is about upscaling and rescaling individuals within retail, beauty, CPG. And I sit on several boards, two of which are public boards and a couple of private boards. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Welcome, Sandra. And last but not least, Brenda McCabe. She's an advisor, board director, and an angel investor an experienced and independent advisor who has spent over 25 years in corporate America and Europe in various leadership roles before leaving to work with a renewable energy technology firm. She currently owns and operates Next Act Advisors. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you, Martin. And to my esteemed uh, panelists, um, I am probably the oldest, so after 25 years in Europe and America with McKinsey and Company and AstraZeneca. I um, found my mission. Um, I discovered disruptive technology working in the startup space um, at a um, clean tech company. I subsequently began to sit on corporate boards, a public pharmaceutical company, private equity portfolio, co portfolio companies. My career has been in Europe and in Los Angeles and the United States. I'm particularly passionate around women-led businesses and four verticals, clean tech companies where I have a long history of experience, digital health, med tech, and enterprise SaaS, where I have served as CEO, interim CEO of one of my clients. And I am an angel investor and recently have created jointly with the Indus Entrepreneurs, a women's fund for pre-seed and seed. So we are actively writing checks to women-led companies, sector agnostic awesome. stage. So thank you um, for this opportunity to share our experiences. I'm really looking forward and I'm so happy to have you guys here. Um, so let's head into our first topic, uh, pioneering woman in VC, success stories and lessons learned. Um, can we talk about or can you guys talk about the historical perspective of women in the VC industry and the critical role they play in the venture capital ecosystem? Well, well, I might, <laughs> maybe I'll jump in and then Brenda, I'll say it quickly. I think um, just a few years ago, so in about 2020, women, uh, the amount of venture capital that flowed directly to female founders was measured between 2.4 and 2.6%, which obviously is very low, less than 1% to minorities. And then last year at the end of 2022, we dipped to 1.8%, which is underneath 2%. So I think, um, in terms of looking at the history, I think it highlights that the system is broken and needs great transformation and disruption so that there are um, more female-founded um, venture-backed companies. Um, and so that's why I'm glad that we're having this conversation so we can talk about ways and tools and, and so that we can help change the equation. But I'd say historically, we have... I don't know how you dip at 2%, um, but we're dipping at 2%. So that's where we are right now. Um, there are definitely women um, and companies doing fund of funds that are starting to invest in more emerging managers, even including the state of California through iBank. So I do think that we are seeing some efforts all raise, but I'll let um, Brenda take it from here in terms of her perspective, but my perspective is the system is broken and we definitely need, it's ripe for change. Yes, thanks, uh, Melinda. I just uh, briefly, this morning, Institutional Investors published an article 
in which they have been polling the private equities, I'm sorry, the, the LPs of um, VCs and private equities. And, and the this year is a record-breaking 46% of LPs are asking for DE&I measurements within the funds that they're invested in. And, you know, it's, I, I, it's gone up from like 36% in the last three years. And recently I had the opportunity to speak directly with John Chamberlain, the Emeritus CEO of Cisco. And when asked the question, you know, how do you get beyond the 2%? He said, you know, what, what gets measured gets done because if the VCs, the fastest way to get to greater investment in women-led companies and actually is actually getting more LP, GPs onto the VC funds. If we were to increase the number of women sitting on the other side of the screen, evaluating investments at 10% per year, we could be at parity in less than 10 years, right? So that 2% could go up. The other thing that he shared, um, which I, is just creating more, more GPs, right? Um, in, in alternative funds. And um, to focus on, there's only 20% of the VCs in the United States represent 90% of the largest companies that are actually going on to IPO or, or some large exit strategy. So focusing in on where to make impact, I think will provide a roadmap for us. I agree with you, Brenda. I mean, if we look at just the historical pattern, we have got 20 years ago, you wouldn't necessarily see women running um, any VCs or LPs. Um, that just wasn't such a welcoming space for women. Um, mm -hmm. 10 years ago, it was getting better. And now we're starting to see that shift and that change happening where there is a support and there are initiatives to ensure that women are on the LPs and they're helping to make those decisions of where to invest funds um, and really looking to diversify the strategy. Um, women have to be sitting in those roles um, where decisions are being made. And so th there's a key focus, I think, that all of us need to ensure that we're mentoring and we're really bringing women up through the ranks and ensuring that they're sitting in those positions of decision making. Yeah, and I will add on as a Latina myself, and it's even that much harder uh, the numbers are that much lower for women of color, uh, whether it's board seats, whether it's investments, whether it's that people think that there's not a pipeline, it's even that much harder. It's 60% harder for Latinas to actually get a bank loan than it is for non-Hispanics to get a loan. So there's a lot that we have to overcome. I agree with everything that everyone has said so far. I do also think the pipeline is really important because a lot of investors that I've seen, whether it's VC or private equity, they're looking for the pipeline. They need a pipeline. So I find it to be something that is my responsibility as well to make sure that I'm helping to bring others through that journey and helping to highlight and feature women like I'm doing with Latina Disruptors to make sure that these sources of capital that they have access to, but also that they see that there are a substantial amount of women out there generating substantial amount of business. You know, there's, there's people that are generating 10 to $50 million worth of business that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you happen to do the research and open up the doors outside of your own network. So that's a, a big part of it is really being open to learning and listening and meeting people from outside your own network as well. So within that topic, uh, what are some of the best pathways to becoming a successful VC? Anyone. You're asking one person in particular. Sorry. <laughs> Anyone can jump in. Well, I um, um, have became uh, become an angel investor and getting into the VC and creating a fund by starting to write my own checks, right? And um, I know we'll be talking about this later in the discussion, but um, you know, it's good money investing in women and the return search. You know, every single company I've invested in, three of them are women led continue to operate, have not had an exit, but they continue into the fifth and seventh year to operate and, and deliver returns. So I think it's a good business decision and just, you know, really being bold and perhaps to Sandra's point, um, providing opportunities is write that check for a woman. Okay. And um, Melinda, here, I'll be specific. So Melinda C., who do you admire in the VC industry and what valuable lessons have you learned from them? 
you know, there's one, um, Christina Nunez over at True Beauty Ventures is um, a particular um, insightful and very attuned investor. Um, the companies that she invests in with her partner, Rich, um, really, they're not passive investors. And their goal set is to really mentor and help and share knowledge and share wealth. And I think so much of what it is that we need to shift and we need to really support is that sharing of knowledge. Um, each one of us has in the VC community, in the, you know, the finance community and the small business community, um, we all have lessons to learn and to share. And I have a particular passion for doing that. And I admire, for instance, Christina who does that um, continuously and will open those doors and make those introductions if a business needs, if founders need that. Yeah, I think we all end up learning. It's a, it's a learnable trait, right? There's a lot of things that you learn after your first, second, third investments and you see what things you can do, but getting and helping as board of advisors, board of directors on companies, small to large enterprise level, obviously they have their own boards and the board system. But I also believe that even startup founders need to make sure that they have a board, a board of advisors or a board of directors that are there with them along the journey because someone that can help see around the corner is going to be really, really valuable all along the way. And, and just going back to what Melinda said in terms of the knowledge, knowledge is incredibly important because knowledge is powerful and knowledge is confidence as well. And the more knowledge we can share, the more we can provide, the more we can make sure that regardless of what the education level is, that somebody knows the difference between asset-based financing, debt financing, and what the options are at their different phases of growth, then we're helping them to, to scale. And that's kind of the goal. We need to help women scale their businesses. And again, I'll go back just speaking in terms of Latinos in general, but out of all the Latino entrepreneurs, which we are the most entrepreneurial cohort in the country, there's only 3% of those that actually scale above a million dollars and only 30% of those that are Latinas that scale above a million dollars. We have a tremendous opportunity to help them understand how to scale their businesses, whether or not a business is scalable and how to make sure that they get the right investor group with them. That's awesome. Um, Melinda M., um, I, I, when it comes to diversity, I'm a true believer of it, like at all levels. I mean, the more diverse a board is, the more diverse employees are, the more ideas flow, uh, the creativity is there. Um, even if somebody doesn't agree with it, you know, everybody has a different approach to say a problem, right? There's always a different solution. I think you have diversity, you come up with a combination of the best. So why is it important to have more women in the VC industry? So um, I love the topic of diversity. I also love food. So I compare <laughs> diversity to an incredible paella dish. A paella dish is better when it had tons of different type of seafood and spices and rice. So if it was just, you know, just shrimp and rice, it wouldn't be paella. So for me, the diversity shows um, the ability. We, we've looked at the research. It shows that diverse teams can pivot faster, that they have different perspectives, that they actually perform better. So in terms of diversity, I think it's important to have diversity at all levels. So that's at the C-level, on the board, on the advisory, middle management, just across the entire board, because I think that that creates even greater perspective and greater ability to perform. Um, so that's on the uh, diversity subject, but you were also asking me, why is it important to have more women? So research also shows that we invest in what we know and we invest in what we look like. So if most people on Sand Hill Road went to Stanford or Harvard and are white males in their 20s and 30s, that's what they historically invest in. So it's absolutely critical that women have the ability to write checks because checks are what's going to make a difference in terms of being able to support um, early stage companies at, you know, which is higher risk at the pre-seed seed and then moving to series A and beyond. So um, I basically think, you know, we write checks in what we know. So 
I think everybody on this call writes checks, so we need to multiply. We need Moore's law um, on on this panel, which is why we're doing this conversation, which we we're projecting it live to LinkedIn. So I just challenge everybody who's watching this um, to write checks for businesses that are backed by women in diverse teams and ones that they feel comfortable with and that they can add value. I can just add to Melinda because from a consumer standpoint of which my career has been focused on, we're 75% of the consumer decision makers and in Latino households, it's 85%. So when you talk about women and following up what Melinda was saying about why we need more women, not only investing, but being within VC and in, in certain VC funds, it's because we understand consumers because we are the predominant consumer. So that's another big part, and that can go a long way across a lot of different sectors. And there's data to show that that is the right way we need to move, right? McKenzie published a report that said um, companies with a higher proportion of gender diversity were 21% more likely to outperform on EBIT, and a higher proportion were um, of cultural and ethnic diversity were 33% more likely to outperform. So the data supports this, the call to action. So I, um, I second that motion, Melinda. Thank you, that's awesome. Uh, moving to uh, topic two, building diverse investment teams. Let's explore the importance of diverse teams in the VC industry. Uh, Sandra. Uh, well, first thing is that in order to have diverse teams, and I, when I talk about diversity, I talk about everything, age, diversity, diversity of experience, not only just background, race, sexual orientation, et cetera. Um, but we need to be able to also open it up to where we give people the opportunity to write the checks that don't have to be $100,000 and above, or they don't have to be a million dollars and such. You know, So to be able to truly have more diversity and bring more people to the table. We also need to make sure that we have vehicles in which they can actually start to invest earlier and with less money and, and earlier in their stages of, of growth as in their careers so that they can have opportunities to write bigger checks as they get further along. That would be one point that I would make. Brenda? You know, um, I, I'm always the, the optimist and um, I think we're currently living the largest transfer of wealth in the United States of America. Um, boomers, of which I am one. Um, the interesting thing is there are a lot of women that are coming into wealth because of generational inheritance. And they are gonna be the movers and shakers. They're actually um, using uh, different professional service companies. There are, as uh, Sandra alluded to, and Melinda, Melinda M., there are more and more opportunities and um, funds that are educating women on what it means to become an angel investor and writing those checks. So I'm the forever optimist and think this is going to take another generation uh, to move the needle, but I'm watching it from the outside, largest transfer of wealth. Women are making decisions and we're handling our money. Well, with that being said, what would the strategies be for promoting diversity and inclusion? Pipeline, increasing um, pipeline, uh, not only in your um, VC, your funds, your LPs, but also casting your net wider in terms of universities, uh, startup programs, where there is a large, again, not only women, but um, other ethnic groups, sexual orientation, just casting the net. Access, access is the number one blocker. Yeah. And I don't remember which one of the Melinda's said this before, but I think it was Melinda M. Um, when you grow up on the same street, those are your friends. When you work and you go to the same schools and you work with the same type of people, that's what you know, that's who you know. And so I see a lot of, VC investors and private equity investors right now looking for additional pipeline because they understand and recognize that they are only investing in what they know. So we can't make change without that. But uh, yeah, I, I think that Brenda's right as it relates to women coming into more wealth, but, uh, also having opportunities, staying single longer, um, 
you know, going to college more and having higher paying jobs. And so with that, we need to just have access and provide that access. So I guess one question I would have, Brenda, is if uh, women are coming into more wealth, are they moving into investment? Are they moving into VC? Or is there maybe an initiative that gathering that to create that movement? Has that been approached? Is it happening? Does it need to happen? Well, what I'm observing is all of the banks um, uh, are, have a wealth management um, division, and they are aggressively um, hiring women to discuss with women wealth management. Um, your JP Morgans, your Wells Fargo, I mean, every single bank on Wall Street, Main Street America, have built out entire teams of, of wealth advisors. Um, so with that, when we look like the women that are inheriting or, or handling the wealth. Um, I wanted to add one other concept to that of pipeline. And that is one of, um, rather than being a mentor of a woman, is being a sponsor. And that message is a call out to those that are here on the LinkedIn Live, um, particularly those men in the virtual room here. Becoming a sponsor is actually you're sitting in those rooms where there's largely men. Bring a woman along. Talk about a woman. Be an active sponsor, not just mentoring on 101. It's just being that, that external sponsor for a woman-led company or an investment in a woman-led company or actually bringing an LPs as woman. There's also that option of the social networks, right? We have a tendency, so much of the relationships that we have are just when we're together, right? And there's relations, there's social networks that are occurring that are female-centric, um, and there's others that are co-ed. And the focus should be on, really to your point, Brenda, is bringing people together, whether it's a continuous form of education, um, it's sharing knowledge, it's sharing um, access, it's making introductions, um, both at this stage here now where many are able to invest and or raise capital. But I also believe it needs to, we need to be looking at that next generation to your point of, you know, it may take a generation for it to shift. I think everything's going to move in increments, but we also need to look at how do we bring women up through the, um, through the education process and have them interested in STEM um, where there's a predominant amount of founders coming in from STEM degrees. How do we encourage that? How do we ensure that we are both looking at it from our perspective today here where we sit, but also from that next generation um, and ensuring that access continues and, and ultimately grows. And that actually is perfect lead way into the next topic, which is nurturing the next generation of female founders and board members. What are some of the best ways to uplift the future generation of female founders? Which, uh, Sandra, you kind of hit on that. You said, you know, diversity at all ages. Uh, and I've been asked many questions. What's, what's too young to be on a board? And I always say, well, you know, kind of like age is irrelevant. It's really experience and education. But you can correct me or, or what are the best ways to help out uh, cover all ages and how do we bring up uh, the woman, the young woman to lead into this. And like Melinda said, and I think Brenda said that next generation. Well, there are a tremendous amount of options today that didn't exist 20 years ago. Options in terms of communities, organizations that are women led that provide workshops, training. They do it along with corporations as well. So when corporations are able to actually take on those whether it's Luminary, Chief, you've got a number of different organizations that are nationwide. And if companies bring those on, then they give access to their employees to go through those workshops, to learn, to train, to network, et cetera. And it's not necessarily about the age as much as it is about what your skill set is. So also being able to upskill, reskill, have those have the different cross-functional knowledge so that you can actually speak to and understand what's necessary and what's needed out there. Um, you know, in a lot of boards today, there's a renewed focus on things that weren't that way five years ago, cybersecurity being one of them. You know, mm -hmm. IT and cybersecurity, there's so much more technology, there's so much more about privacy and, and security, and we know what's happened in terms of the hacking around the world. So that's an entire area 
that speaking to what Melinda C. had said earlier in terms of um, you know, getting women in STEM and getting those involved earlier on, they need to see what the options are in their career. I actually didn't even think about being on a board until I had my second CEO role. I really hadn't thought about it. And at that point in time, that's when I started to learn about boards, about what the process is, going through the interviewing process, but not only that, what the expectations are, what the different dynamics are in boards, what's, what's different about being an, an independent director on a VC-backed board versus a private equity board versus a public board. And so being able to really share that through these different instruments and these organizations, I think is a really great way to help the next generation. And obviously, as others have said here, to really lend that hand backwards, because it wasn't that long ago that we were there also asking the questions, looking, being curious and wanting to get there, but without having somebody who could help us along the way. A mentorship. I would add, uh, uh, you know, call out um, to um, an organization called 5050 for women. Um, it's largely to get to move the needle on the number of women sitting on public companies. Uh, boards, but there are over 36,000 positions for private equity, private owned companies in the United States. So your options of getting on a private company are far outweigh those of getting on a public company. And uh, I think, Sandra, you mentioned it earlier, um, uh, becoming an advisor. So an, on the advisory board of an early stage company is oftentimes, and not, 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 you don't necessarily have to write a check, but Getting, becoming an advisor uh, on an advisory board um, often leads to becoming a full fiduciary board member. Um, so uh, don't, don't think that you have to be narrow and be on a, a Russell 2000 companies board. It's starting in those 36,000 open private uh, company board positions across the United States. Yeah, I always looked at that as getting your foot in the door and if you are an advisor, you build a relationship, and if that company ends up going public, why would they not look at their current advisors as right. potential board members before even looking for anybody else, especially if the diversity is there, which that's what we get a lot. Companies that come to us, they're like go, getting ready to go public, and they're missing that diversity, and you know that's when we get excited because they're specifically asking for that, um, but like to your point, Brenda, if they already had advisors, they've had two, three years of working relationship, that's just a great lead way into being, becoming on the board officials. So um, what are some helpful resources and tools that drive the real impact? And I know you already mentioned some, but um, anything else besides what you already mentioned, workshops, you know, I'd recommend, I, you mentioned 5050 Women on Board. There's also Him for Her, which is a great organization with, mm -hmm. that Jocelyn Mangan runs. Um, I sit on a board with her. There's NACD, which runs programs, as well as organizations, um, inst institutions like Stanford um, and Princeton, who, who, have, um, who have training, um, as well as just connecting with individuals that are in that space and having dialogue and having conversations. Um, you know, Sandra mentioned this earlier, this idea of, you know, I don't know that we all grew up thinking that we might sit on boards, mm -hmm. uh, but as we worked our way through management and it, there were opportunities that were presented to ourselves, it's really coming, um, it, it's really that that education and being aware of, of how boards run and how to ensure that you're staying at sort of that higher level um, and making decisions and providing advice. And I'd also recommend sitting on nonprofit boards as well, um, because there's a lot to be learned there. There's a lot to give back, obviously, um, as well as connections to be made, right? Um, it, it's, it's just those, those individuals that are typically sitting on a public board or a private board are also sitting on a nonprofit as well. And I love that you added into, sorry, I love that you added into him for her as well, because it just shows that we need male allies all along the way. Um, also, just again, giving the, the diverse angle of it in terms of the support groups, the Latino Corporate Directors Association, the LCDA, not only is it an organization for Latinos to join, to be able to learn and get, go through exercises, uh, making sure they have their branding and all the materials and all the things right, but also for companies, whether they're private companies or public companies, to be able to utilize the LCDA as a, as a, as a group and a resource to finding that pipeline. 
And I would add, um, again, my I, my first um, board opportunity was the public company in Spain and um, in the pharmaceuticals. And at that time, uh, Women Corp Directors, which is an organization largely in the United States, um, did not have a presence in, in um, Spain. We opened that chapter there. So Women Corp Directors is a nonprofit. Um, you do need to be sitting on either a large nonprofit or a large uh, public company, support or private company to be a member. There's a lot of training programs. It is um, organized in large cities, um, chapters. Um, I would also add and continue to network. Your alma mater um, has, um, I, I went to the University of Chicago. There's a lot of governance training you can go back and get. And I'm certain Harvard has a program, um, Stanford, as Melinda said. So either pockets of um, um, courses that you can take over the summer to really understand, you know, what is the operations of a fiduciary board and what are your responsibilities? And um, and those that are more specific to the women's world is women corporate directors, 50-50 women on boards. And a recent one that I've joined is exceptional women on boards. Um, and um, a lot of there's active training um, and we work a lot with or get training from a lot of the Companies like Deloitte, EY, Deloitte has a governance um, center, um, EY, KPMG, all of them have uh, within their um, alma mater programs for governance training. Anybody else? Well, I think it just gets a step up then when you get onto board. we lost you committee which is entirely different if you're not a cfo but it's all great learning opportunities but it's also taking advantage sorry my my <laughs> my screen froze um but it's also taking advantage of the learnings that you you have along the way and the other peers that you have in the group it's all of the things that then go into it when you actually do get on a public company it's good to really get ahead and in the language and understand what some of those expectations are because you'll inevitably be, inevitably be on a committee. Awesome. Um, we do have some time for some specific questions and I have one for each of you. Are you guys ready? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Melinda Moore. Um, so you've had a lot of success in your career, including notable exits from companies you invested in. What do you think sets successful entrepreneurs apart from those who aren't as successful? Um, that's a great question. Um, so I'd say successful entrepreneurs, I mean, it's definitely a very rare individual. So I'd say a few things. Um, as a successful entrepreneur, you have to have a very strong vision and noble purpose. So definitely understanding your why you're doing this and that why uniquely you should be doing this and that you're able to do this. I also let people know um, very early stage that successful entrepreneurs are successful fundraisers because you need to be able to fundraise to be able to hire the right talent, to be able to scale, to be able to market, to be able to do product development. You you're not freezing. Education, um, not being afraid to ask for money, ask for more than you need. Um, and so those are things also, you know, it, do, it does take a bunch of grit. Being an entrepreneur, I've been an entrepreneur four times at least. Um, it is a roller coaster ride. So you have to be able to be like, okay, one day you're like, okay, I'm going to sell for a billion dollars. And what am I going to do with this money? And how do, how do I handle the taxes? And you're like calling a tax attorney. And then it's like <laughs> a week later, you're like, wait, pull me out of escrow on that house because the market fell. And that literally did happen to me, what I just said in the early 20s. And I was like, wait, what is happening? And I didn't know how to short thing, you know, short the stock and all of these things. So it truly is a roller coaster ride. So if you're the type of person that likes stability, then and you want to be on a merry-go-round, you probably don't <laughs> yourself be an entrepreneur. But if you have the grit and the tenacity and you you know the why and you're good at fundraising and you're charismatic and can hire a good team, 
I think that makes a good entrepreneur. And as an investor, I always look, I listen to what entrepreneurs do, not what they say. Perfect. Since you brought up funding, I wasn't going to ask the second question, but it leads right into it. What are some of the common mistakes that founders make when they are seeking investment? Melinda? I'll tap on that really quickly. So one is a lot of in, uh, investors and founders don't do their research. So if you're um, a, you know, a, a consumer-based company, then why would you talk to a clean tech or to a fintech investor. Um, so I often, in myself, I get pitched all the time and through LinkedIn, but they're not even taking the time to read what my investment thesis is. That literally is the number one mistake because it it just wastes, I, I value people's time and I think everybody should value people's time. Yeah. And when you're pitching people, mm -hmm. investors that don't even invest, it's just, you're just wasting a lot of time and clogging the system. So I'd say number one is really to do your homework on the investors, make sure that there's not competitive, make sure that they invest in the vertical at the stage, make sure that you think that they're going to add strategic value and then be prepared to say why you want them as investor. Those are my two cents. Awesome. Uh, Melinda C. Um, you've worked at top tier companies, including Disney Universal Music Group. How did those experiences shape your approach to not only finance and operations, but to where you're at today? How did that shape you? I mean, those are big companies. Those are, <clears throat> those are very big companies. And I was fortunate to work in some of their um, th they were investing in new business opportunities. So at Disney, oh. they were investing in a new record label. Um, and so I was working in with their music subsidiary. So I had the opportunity to work with their team that basically um, decided where to invest funds in new growth opportunities. And so there was definitely, it was almost like a mini, um, mini VC, if you will, and really being able to to look at what is the strategic purpose of this? Where does it fit within the larger environment? Um, and then how do we ensure that we've got synergy and we're making use of the definite ability to cross-refer business or cross-create? Um, and so there was, there's a diligence that happens with, from larger corporations, right? It's not, it's not moving um, super quickly, but there's, um, it's kind of, it, for me, it was definitely grounding in the sense of what are those action steps that we need to take? How do we go to market? Who do we hire, right? To be able to ensure that the team will be successful. And then how do we deploy capital? Um, and in both of these companies, both at Universal and at Disney, so much of it was about really ensuring that there was this openness of communication between the leadership team and our parent company, really, and our funder. So it was really this almost investment thesis that I operated within. I have to tell you, I loved it. Um, very, very smart individuals um, and definitely was able to see both the much more, the larger company environment and thesis along with the founders that we brought in to kind of create these new business ventures and really bridging that gap, which I find considerably useful in doing exactly that in what I'm doing today with my advisory firm um, that I manage, working with emerging growth companies and talking to and working with VCs and private equity firms in that funding environment, right? It's almost that similar sort of um, perspective. That's awesome. Um, Sandra. As a board member for several companies, including Fabric and Big Lots, what do you think are the most important responsibilities of a board member and how do you approach that role? Hmm. Um, <laughs> different phases of a company require different dynamics within the courtroom, within the courtroom, oh my God, <laughs> within the boardroom as well. Why am I thinking courtroom? Um, <laughs> Anyway, so you know, I think that first of all, Big Lots was my first public board. So for me, I was 
really, it was an, it is an impressive group of board directors who have been on many boards, many very established boards who were uh, CEO peers of a very large companies. And so I really looked up to them. And one of the first things that one of them had called me ahead of time, we had just some like, you know, mentor, um, some buddies, I guess, in the buddy system that we have for the boards. One of them had called me ahead of time. He was an operating CEO in a company in a retailer similar. And he said, you know, I just want you to know before you walk in the room, you are no longer an operator. So you need to put a different hat on. You need to put a different spin on how you're looking at things because you will see problems and you'll think immediately, oh, I know, let's do this. This is a solution, you know, because you've been used to doing that as an operator and coming up with initiatives and all these other things. Because that's not your role. It's the management's role. So it was actually something that I repeat because it was so important to me that I heard that before I ever walked into the boardroom because I was already expecting it. I was anticipating that I needed to have a different set of eyes when I was hearing from the management team and learning how to ask the questions. So I did actually listen to the rest of the very experienced group of directors and, and try to understand like, what were they trying to get to? How were they getting to it? How can I actually be more helpful? How can I add value? What do I bring into the room that no one else has? What's the experience that I have that no one else can talk to? And so that's really how, you know, for the first year, I would say I definitely played it in that regard. On the fabric board, it's a VC backed board. I'm the only independent director and I'm the only operator within retail. So it's a very different position because I had the experience for the customer that they ultimately want to get from a SaaS software platform perspective. And so I come in with the learnings and the understandings of the decision maker and what's good and what's not good from a go-to-market standpoint, what's going to resonate, what's not. So it's, it's very different on that front. Um, but I think, you know, you have to listen and learn um, and not walk in thinking, you know, everything, certainly not the first time. And being able to understand the difference between being an operator and being on a board is really critical. So in regards to that, and I'm very hands-on myself, how, how did you handle that transition of not being able to like jump in and just fix the problem? Put my hands under my seat. <laughs> <laughs> As I speak with my hands, as I start to get, no, I had to just control myself and make notes, um, but then figure out ultimately, how do I turn those into questions, right? Because it may not be the right thing that the, the company wants to take on, but how do I turn those into questions just to, to kind of make and bring it to light or make them aware of something that perhaps is something that I've seen that may be concerning or something they should consider or think about, but, but more about how does it turn into a question? And Awesome. Um, thank you. Uh, Brenda, now with you with over 25 years of experience and uh, not only corporate America, but also obviously in Europe, what inspired you to leave the corporate world and start Next Act Advisors? And can you talk about some of the challenges and opportunities you faced in starting your own consulting firm? Well, that's a loaded question, but <laughs> answer. And, and thank you for asking it because um, uh, my you know, transition from living in Europe for over 25 years back to the United States, where I'm originally from, was, um, you know, I left at 22, came back at 50. Uh, why did I leave corporate America? Um, I um, was going to grad school when Enron uh, collapsed, and I had a few Enron classmates. I was at McKinsey at that time, and I later on... Um, worked in the pharmaceutical industry and AstraZeneca in both corporate experiences. Um, the, I saw very lack of corporate governance. Matter of fact, SOX came out of that. And I saw very egregious uh, collusion, um, unethical behavior that was really around incentives. We had patients that were not getting their medication because we were, our sales reps were sending it to countries that had a higher margin. And I left the pharmaceutical world when I was actually fixing that problem. And I said, I, I, I was headhunted into um, disruptive technology. So I kind of fell into Next Act Advisors and really um, believing that through disruptive technology, not that you're going to take down the big corporates, but you're going to do it better. And so my mission at Next Act Advisors is really building the knowledge from get-go at a base with founders on what is good corporate governance. You don't have to have a fiduciary board of directors immediately, you can have an advisory board, but do the basic employment agreements, your bylaws, so really build up 
Um, and always have that arm's length and that questioning attitude is, is this right for the enterprise? Because ultimately you are owned by your shareholders. You're not owned by the management. So that's what um, I'm all about. Next Act Advisors and those four, four verticals. Some of the challenges, of course, coming back to the US was I really had to develop my personal brand. Um, who is Brenda McCabe and what, what is my experience? And it really um, was working with, um, I hired consultants to work with me on developing my, my brand, Next Act Advisors, which is my next act, not my last act. But my <laughs> next act. It's a bridge to bring great ideas out of the lab. I work in deep tech um, uh, companies into commercialization with good corporate governance. And um, that's the, my challenges, opportunities, sky's the limit. There's a lot, there are a lot of opportunities to disrupt um, those, those four areas that I'm in um, with, with um, new technology. So thank you. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, I have a group question. As investors, advisors, and board members within this group, you guys have a unique insight into, the, into what makes a successful startup. What are some of the key factors you look for when evaluating startups? And how can, you, can founders ensure that they are meeting those or that criteria? Anybody can start. I'll start since I was the last one. Um, also, and I next act advisors I work with startups, um, typically Perfect. at the growth stage. Uh, they need to be a lot of the founders are very um, uh, technical, scientists, um, engineers. Um, they're very product oriented, and it's important for me to know that they also recognize the importance of the business side, right? And how I. I get that, uh, learn from whether I want to work with them or invest in them is how they spend their time. Where do you spend your time? Is it all on product development or are you recruiting your team? So it's all about the soft side of the business, but it's, it's as equally important as is the product. I'll agree with you, Brenda. I also think the commercial aspect of the business is really key. Like there has to be a passion for what it is that they're developing um, or creating and then a clear understanding of what that go-to-market strategy is and what how to monetize that because that becomes key. We, we all have many ideas. I can't think of the number of ideas I had even as I was raising kids and such that this would be the best product. But at the end of the day, if my TAM was like the three people around me, then that's not a great business idea, right? It's, it's combining and that interrelation between passion and the project and the product and um, and how is it going to make money and ultimately um, bring a return to the investors. Sandra, Melinda M, anything to add? I would add in, I do look for capital efficiency because that's very important in terms of that the um, founders are able to scale, but that the economics look good. Because I always say to founders, make sure that your margins and the numbers are right from the beginning as you scale up, because it takes the same amount of energy to launch a company that has 65, 80% margins as it does 20%. So why do the 20%, right? I, I, oftentimes, um, founders will push back on me, but that's because they're so passionate about what they're doing. But I'm trying to explain to them that the numbers don't actually make sense. So please come back to me with something where there's capital efficiency, but you're you're working with numbers that are highly attractive to be able to scale. So to go from pre-seed to exit or to IPO. And so truly understanding um you know, the, the finance, the finances that are actually necessary to have that type of um, scale and that type of success. You'd, you'd be, you'd be amazed at the pushback that I get on what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> Not much amazes me these days. Sandra. Yes, yes. And yes to what every one of these incredible women have said. And because I look at a lot of consumer businesses, a lot of them being internet, D2C specific, there's great ideas. And then there's entrepreneurs who may or may not know anything about how to market it online and not know anything about SEO and all the different aspects of it. And so I think a lot of what I look for is 
to what Melinda C said, which is what's the addressable market? Like, is there a white space for it? Or are you doing something that much better, more impactful, more compelling for the consumer? Um, you know, two is like, how saturated is that space online? And, and what's your team? What is the team that you have? Or what's the knowledge that you have to be able to actually really be able to be searchable online? And then from a marketing standpoint, because we're just, we have so much product everywhere that we look. And, you know, it needs to be something that's compelling, whether it's the packaging, whether it's the uniqueness of the product, whether it's in material, whether it's in functionality, you know, various things like that. So there's, when I look at the consumer piece of the business, because I'm speaking to that specifically, um, that's, those are some of the layers that I kind of look at and try to understand if they specifically as the entrepreneur don't understand the back end of technology, do they have someone on the team that does? Do they have you know, not only the passion, I have to be passionate about it as well, which pets and wag, thank you. Uh, <laughs> pets is like at the top of my list because I have eight horses, two dogs and a cat. So oh my like, gosh. That world. So, but because I know certain things, I, I like to be passionate also in terms of what I invest in. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so with that board experience, what do you think are the most important responsibilities of a board and what are some effective strategies for fulfill, for, I can't talk, for fulfilling those responsibilities open to anybody? Sandra? Well, I, think we've said a, I think we've said a lot of things as it relates to the most important responsibilities that you have. And, um, you know, Brenda had said earlier, it's a shareholder and ultimately there, you're there for them um, and not necessarily, yes, you're there as a partner to the management team on the public side. But I think the most important responsibility is, in my view, to be able to utilize your voice with that point of differentiation that might really help them think about something or challenge them in a way that can help them grow and scale the business further or improve profitability or whatever the different metric is that you're trying to impact. Um, you're there for a reason. So walking in with your own, your own brand and your own point of view and your own experience to be able to use that to the benefit of the organization is the responsibility. And so how you do that, whether it's the questions you ask or um, the introductions that you make, however you do that really has to always just be focused on the benefit of the shareholder, the company and, and how they're gonna get to the next phase. And there's such a key focus on not running the business, right? As a board, you're not making the day-to-day -day decisions. You're really, and, and Sandra, you mentioned this earlier, the you are helping to ensure that the strategy and the go forward focus um, is present at all times and then helping to ensure that there aren't areas that any blind spots or any areas that haven't been addressed. It's really um, ensuring that you are that additional voices um, to ensure success and 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 it is shareholder value ultimately at the end of the day. And we do have that fiduciary duty. Absolutely. Yeah, on the fiduciary board uh, responsibilities are three. Largely it's CEO hiring and firing. Um, actually, you are responsible for the legal and regulatory and financial um, filings as a board of directors. And thirdly, oversight of the strategic plan. So to Melinda C's point. Um, and that's what you're held. How you do that? Your voice, as um, Sandra mentioned, is important and asking very good questions. Melinda Moore, do you want to say anything? Um, We're reaching that one hour or two minutes. Yeah, I think we've I've got I think we've got two minutes. So I think they did a great job. If there's if there's something that we can do with the two minutes with another question or an audience question, I think that would be great. That was all the questions I had written down and I don't have anything that popped up. So I think we're good. Is this a wrap? Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks I look so forward to working time. with you guys more. So be on the lookout oh, sure. from, uh, for an email from me. No, oh, absolutely wonderful. Thank you guys for all um, joining. I feel like I've met some incredible women here. Um, and Martin, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. And to everybody in the audience that's a woman, just be bold. That's my last. Be bold. <laughs> that was Thanks. awesome. Bye. Bye.
thank you. Thank you guys. Really appreciate the time from that you guys took away to be on this panel. Um, thank you, Melinda Moore, Melinda Chalaya, Brenda Makeby, and Sandra Campos. I'm Martin Robinski, co-founder and CEO of Boardseye, and I thank everyone for joining us today at Leadership Talk Series. See you all at next event. Have a great day. Thank, thank you. you. Take care.